There's no direct on the word. Not for me. You can't say do it. He hated directors. Hated them. After the first three days of shooting, Mr. Kinski had started six fist fights with my crew. So I resigned myself to a runaway production with Mr. Kinski. On the fourth day of shooting, I showed up on the set. The Italian producer had a pleasant smile on his face. He explained he had a solution to our problem with Mr. Kinski. I was going to kill him for the insurance money. And he wasn't kidding. I raced to the nearest phone. I called the American producer. He's going to kill Kinski for the insurance money. And he's serious. Bummer, he said. Bummer? Mr. Kinski was an awful man, but he didn't deserve to die for it. Fortunately, cooler heads prevailed. We were not going to kill Mr. Kinski for the insurance money. We were going to bite the bullet. In a funny sort of way, I felt I had saved Mr. Kinski's life, and he owed me. Right? Right. On the fifth day, Walter Conner found out I had recommended firing Mr. Kinski, and so informed his client. On the fifth day, Mr. Kinski declared war on me. I know when I was wrong, all right. I knew it was right. He began with a full frontal assault. We were halfway through the day. The A.D. called for sound, speed, camera, rolling, and he turned to me, and I said, and action. And there was this scream. I look over and see Mr. Kinski with his head between his hands, screaming, action, action, action. I've made over 200 movies, and directors are always saying action. And I looked at Kinski, and he pointed his finger at me. There's Moses on the mount. There's Moses in that picture. There's Moses' finger. He pointed it at me, and he said, don't say action. All right, Klaus, what would you like me to say? I don't care. Just don't say action. How about if I just say, Klaus? So this silly routine lasts for about a day and a half. And then out of the blue, after I've started the scene with the word Klaus, there's this scream. I look over, and there's Klaus with his head between his hands, looking up, screaming, Klaus, 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 all my life, directors have called Klaus. I remembered from the Playboy interview with Mr. Kinski that he was famous for getting rid of directors. After a while, it just wasn't worth it. They'd walk. I was determined this wasn't going to happen to me. This was my film. I would outlast him. If I don't say Klaus to start the scene, what would you suggest I say? And he says, say nothing. I'll start when I'm ready. At this point, my crew begins whispering in my ear. One by one, three or four times a day. David, please kill Mr. Kinski. Please kill Mr. Kinski. Please kill Mr. Kinski. We were headed for the home stretch, and it looked like I was going to survive Mr. Kinski. But the little prick wasn't finished with me yet. Everything's going along fine. We're shooting this scene. It ends, and I say the only word left to me as a director. I say, cut. And there's this scream. I look over, and there he is with his head between his hands, looking up, screaming, cut, cut, cut. I've made over 200 movies, and directors are always saying cut. And he points that Moses' finger at me, and he says, don't say cut. Okay, Klaus, what would you like me to say? And Klaus says, say nothing. I'll stop when I'm finished. My crew implores me, no longer whispering in my ear, but muttering out loud within earshot of the monster himself, please kill Mr. Kinski. But I wasn't going to kill Mr. Kinski, even if I wanted to. I needed the bastard to finish my movie. A few years later, I get this phone call. Mr. Kinski had died. And they quoted me in his obituary, confirming that he had a reputation as being difficult with directors. At first, I felt awful. You die and your obituary should list your accomplishments. Here I was trashing the man. And then I remembered what a mean bastard he'd been to me. 
This was just karma biting him in the ass. This was my revenge. Radio Drome. Welcome to another episode of Radio Drome. I am Josh Hadley. With me this week is the Peter the Monkey Man from Canada, Serbia himself. Pretty much, yeah. He's barely here, and Cecil will be off for a couple of weeks at least. He suffered a personal tragedy in his life, and Peter and I are there for him, but he just he needs some time to deal with this, so he'll be back, hopefully in a couple of weeks, but he'll, he'll be back when he's ready to be back. So it's just Peter and I tonight. But guys, if you want to help out the show at all, you probably should go to adamandeve.com. There you can get 50% off of a single item, three free DVDs, a free sex swing, and free U.S. shipping if you use the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. It really helps us out, helps you out in these quarantine times, get something to keep yourself amused, maybe. Or, you know, maybe prolapse something. adamandeve.com, promo code DROME. And also, if you're going to be going to some of the skeevier parts of the internet, where Peter and I tend to spend most of our time, you're going to need a VPN, a virtual private network. And for that, you can use Nord, NordVPN. So you go to 1201beyond.com backslash DROME, VPN. That'll bring you to Nord's site with our code, and then you'll be able to get Nord's protection to encode your data, to protect your data, to get around region locking, all that stuff, for only $3.79 a month. That's 75% off of a three-year plan. It's a great deal. 1201beyond.com backslash Drome VPN. So that said, you are a big cinephile. Now, when I say separating the art from the artist, we've talked about this many, many times, where, you know, you find out somebody's a pedophile or they're a wife beater or something like that. It takes it really hard to like to like their work, right? Well, what if you just find out they're a, just a shithead, that they're just an asshole? Is it is it hard for you to like a director or an actor or a writer or somebody when you just find out they treat everyone around them like garbage? D- does that not sour you on their work some? It can, to a degree, does make me kind of question the quality of their work sometimes. But I mean, there, there is like a separation, though, because if I do find out that a director is like a molester or like a pedophile, I completely drop watching any of their work entirely. Like in the case of somebody like Victor Salva or Roman I'm obviously Polanski. never like I'll, I'll yeah, I'll like never watch uh, Salva's work ever again. I'll never watch Jeepers Creepers 3 because of, uh, you know, finding out about the child porn stuff. But when it comes to them being assholes, I can still watch their work, but there is that like level of it gets kind of difficult to actually sit down and watch their work when I when I just know that on a on a personal level they're they're just like mean people. Well, and I don't just mean like assholes like, oh, you know, I'm being a jerk. I'm talking like borderline abuse, people that abuse mm-hmm. their crews, abuse the people in their lives. Or even the first one I'm gonna talk about here is abusing the fan base. Suzanne oh. Nagy. 
So Suzanne Nagy is a name most people aren't going to know. Well, she is a Hungarian film producer who in 1983 produced this movie called Grizzly 2 The Concert. Now it's called Grizzly 2 The Revenge, but then it was called Grizzly 2 The Concert. It was a sort of sequel to Grizzly, the William Girdler film. And, you know, it was a sequel in name only. It had this cast of unknown actors like John Rhys-Davies, George Clooney, Laura Dern, Charlie Sheen, people like that in it. And the film was never completed. So around 2007 or so, the work print for the movie, for the about 85% of the movie that was completed, leaked to the internet. And Suzanne Nagy just lost her mind. She started threatening to sue people reviewing it, sue people watching it on YouTube. She was attacking people in the comments. You are watching Stolen Pro. Property, you are a criminal. She was threatening websites that had screen captures and reviews of it. You don't get my support after that because now they've quote unquote completed the film and all these websites are like, yay, yay, we finally get to see this. No, she burned every single bridge with this community. You, you do not, she does not get to get celebrated for doing this. Someone like Suzanne Nagy burned all of her bridges and not a single person listening to this show should support Grizzly 2, because of Suzanne Nagy. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about, where you treat people like garbage, and then you expect, yeah, well, you want to see the product, don't you? You're just going to do what I want. She could do that, like, ten years ago, and just, like, treat people so horribly, and now it's like, yeah, we have to to celebrate her now? It's like, no, she didn't. She didn't even want people to watch this for me. And, and for one, like, Grizzly 2, like, that was uh, finally coming out now. Like, why the hell does it take you so long to make a goddamn bear movie? My point, though, is she does not deserve support. And so do some of these other people. Even though I really like some of these people we're going to talk about as filmmakers, I'm conflicted when you find out how terrible of people they actually are. Lucio Fulci, we love his movies. But when you hear those stories about how he treats the females on his cast and crew, how he he calls them cows, he berates them, he yells at them. Now, only the females, because remember, Fulci is a guy who has problems with women. I'm not going SJW when I say, this is a man who hates women. Even his own crew admitted, I think it was on the Manhattan Baby extras, you've got his longtime cameraman saying, Fulci could not stand women. He loved them in a sexual sense. He hated them. He always demeaned women. It's like Fulci was a guy who hated women. It really makes it hard for me to watch these movies of his then that have huge female casts knowing these women were treated like garbage because this man is a misogynist. On set behavior and stuff like he seemingly did not have a lot of respect for women, for females in general, um, even though his movies. It's, it's strange, though, because his movies do feature heroic female characters that end up surviving to the end of the movie so it's very weird to me that like at the same time he also seemed to not have much respect for women in general like it's it's a really really weird it's just weird in general but then there's something like abel ferrara you and i both love abel ferrara's work i think of all the man's work i've only not liked maybe two maybe three things he's worked on. I love Abel Ferrara's work, and I lost all respect for him when I saw this interview. I don't know when the interview was from, but it was relatively recent, because he was pretty old at the time. It was like a French interview, and they were asking him about New Rose Hotel. Remember that movie? Uh, kind of, yeah. 
Christopher Walken, Willem Dafoe, Aji Argento is based on a William Gibson story. In this interview, he was talking about how when they were shooting New Rose Hotel, and I don't know how he didn't realize that this was going to happen. They were shooting in late December. Crew, he got angry at his crew because they had the audacity to want to spend Christmas with their families. So he fired everybody. He fired his sound guy, his cameraman, everybody. He fired them because they were not committed to his film. Quote, They didn't care about the movie. Working with me and making movies is a gift from God. And they want to spend Christmas with their family? It's an honor to make a film. Boom, you're gone. If I had a gun, I would have killed you. F*** you. Unquote. Oh my God. Because they had the audacity to want to spend Christmas with their families. He, he considered them disloyal because we're making a movie here. You're, you're putting my vision on the screen. You want to spend time with your family? Get out. Wow. I, I, I will never respect Abel Ferrara after that interview was just, fuck you, dude. Screw you and screw your films. Yeah, I, 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 know, I know that he has like a penchant for doing, like he's done a lot of drunk interviews and stuff like that. But I did not know that he was that like verbally abusive and that he could he could talk like so out of his ass about himself saying that doing a movie with him is like a gift from God. Like and I do love the guy's movies like I love Miss 45 Fear City. I do love a lot of his movies. Um, I do think he's a very talented filmmaker. Driller Killer is very good. King of New York was awesome. Like, I really do love his movies, but it is it is really challenging to watch his movies now, now knowing that he's uh, such a prick to his cast and crew. Like, that's really, it's really a disheartening thing. There are a lot of directors, especially, who think that there's some sort of a god that you do not question them. Because how many times have we seen a director that is clearly going crazy on a movie? You've heard these stories. The director's losing his mind. Like Ridley Scott, I don't know if he's still like this, but in the 80s, he was like this, that he had it in his head, I am the king of this production. He said, don't ever ask me why we're doing something. You ask me how we're going to do it, fine. You ever ask Ask me why we're doing it. You're gone. You're fired. Don't ever question why I want something done. Wow. And I think, dude, f- off already. You know. <laughs> well, there's a. It seems to be that there's a lot of people in Hollywood that have these like kind of god complexes. With Ridley, like that's not a surprise. Like the the his style of filmmaking, his whole because he does this. Um, there's this like spontaneity about the way he makes his movies. Like he wants to like surprise his cast and do this like sort of weird improvising kind of thing like he did it with alien he's done it with other movies like and obviously he is very talented ridley scott's movies look great particularly his like 80s ones you've got alien you got blade runner you got films like this but he also does seem to be a very very holier than thou prick kind of guy this ridley scott does this david fincher does this david soderbergh does this where you you have this weird thing where you you can kind of you can see the director sort of going crazy now Mm. i love the artistry of directing i i totally get that and like i said ridley scott steven soderbergh david fincher they are all known for doing hundred plus takes of one scene because the shadows aren't falling right on the wall or i can't get the smoke exactly the way i like it to the point where the crew is ready to just completely rebel you don't need 130 takes of a dialogue scene well no that's something that like uh like stanley kubrick would do too like 
didn't he pretty much give like Shelly Duvall shell shock because of The Shining? Yeah, because well, because he treated her like crap. I'm talking about the hundred plus takes. Ridley Scott is notorious. His editor on Blade Runner said they had over eighty takes of a dialogue scene that were all virtually identical because Ridley couldn't get the shadows to line up on the wall exactly like he wanted. There's artistry, and there's get out of your goddamn head and move on. There's artistry, and then there's, like, borderline psychosis. Michael Sarney on Myra Breckenridge spent an entire workday, the entire crew and cast sitting around being paid to do nothing to photograph a cake on a table because he couldn't get the light to hit the cake just right. The cake is in the film for eight frames. He spent an entire workday photographing a cake. Jesus. Like I said, the artistry, I say, you want everything to look perfect. I get that. But there's a point when you're at the 100 plus take mark, you're not going to get what you want. Clearly, take 147 is not going to be, oh, we finally got it at take 147. No, that's that's completely insane. And you're really treating your, your cast and crew poorly by making them do something like that over and over again when it it's it's completely like unnecessary and and something that that pretty much nobody is going to notice like i said so sometimes you just have you have a director that's going crazy yeah. and then sometimes you let's get back to the treat everyone like crap now i don't know if he was always like this from about the 90s up you cannot find a positive set story about jim winorski Every single person you talk to, whether they were just there on set as like a reporter or they were a PA or they were a special effects guy or a cameraman, says when Norsky will berate the crew constantly, he spends the bulk of the shoot screaming at people. He will constantly tell people that they're stupid, that they're incompetent, and then he will fire them and say, I'll do it my goddamn self because I'm the only one who seems to be able to do anything right around here. And there's video of him losing, I think it was on the Bear Wench Project, where he just lost his mind, fired the whole crew, and then took over everybody's job. Wow. And it's like, dude, it's hard to find a positive story about Jim Wynorski these days. Let's put it that way. And plus, hasn't he become like pretty much like a huge bigot on social media and stuff, too? Yeah, he, you know, he's made lots of transphobic things. And, you know, I am no SJW, but he was saying that a, a trans woman who used the wrong, quote, wrong bathroom that got shot deserved Deserved it to get shot, basically. Because she deserved it. He claims, in, in all fairness and journalistic integrity, he claims he was hacked and he didn't make those comments. Oh, what a load of shit. And I, I find it Who's funny that hack Jim Wynorski. Well, and also the fact that he was hacked. He said they had his account for 24 hours. Yet every other post in that 24 hour period, besides the trans one, was all about Jim Wynorski movies and the normal things he posts. So no, I don't buy for a second. I, I think he was just backpedaling because he made a stupid comment and realized, uh, this isn't going over well. He was likely drunk posting and said some like stupid shit and he doesn't want to own up to it. Either way, though, it's really disheartening to know that he's he's been such a prick on set and has treated his employees and his cast and crew so badly because, like, I love Return of Swamp Thing. Um, I like I a love lot of his 80s Mall. stuff. Yeah, his, his 80s stuff is great. Did he do Deathstalker 2 as well, or is that someone else? Jim Wynorski kind of became known as the sequel guy. He has, yes. he has, like, a dozen sequels to movies he did not make the original. Personally... I know I'm going to get crap for this, but I think 976 Evil 2 is better than 976 Evil. No, it is really good. Like his sequel, his sequels to stuff are solid. And I, I think he was a definitive name 
in the 80s for the types of films that he would make and the, and the kind of style that he would have. There was a very uh, self-aware kind of funny quality to his movies, and I, I just don't know what happened. I think I do. I'm going to I'm going to play. No, I don't have quote unquote evidence to this. I'm going to play armchair psychologist for a moment. So he came up through Roger Corman while he was coming up through Roger Corman. He was doing a lot of great work. And he saw, I think, all these other people, James Cameron and Francis Ford Coppola and Ron Howard and all this. I think he saw all these other people getting big. By the 90s, when he was doing lower and lower and lower budget direct-to-video and then direct-to-cable, then direct-to-streaming movies, I think he became bitter. He didn't have the career he thought he deserved to have. I think he looks uh. at his old stuff and thinks, I deserve to be making Netflix movies, not Redbox movies. I think it is bitterness and anger because you look at interviews with him from even the 90s. He was still joyful. He was still happy. You look at an interview with him from the last five or so years. He's bitter. He's mean. He's angry. Yeah. I think playing armchair psychologist, he doesn't have the career he thinks he deserves, and he takes that out on his cast and crews. Well, he shouldn't have started making softcore porn. At that time, doing a movie like, what was it, like, Horror Girl Bathtub Party or whatever the hell it was, like, that's... Scream Queen Hot Tub Party. Yes, like, there was a stigma to doing stuff like that back then. If you decided to do, like, a porn thing... You were going to be the porn guy. Nobody would really want to fund your projects. People well, I think he took you. the porn stuff because his career, because if you go and look at his IMDb, you'll notice his stuff gets more obscure and more low budget as it yeah. goes along. I think the porn stuff was to pay the bills. And I totally get that. Lots of directors worked in porn in the 70s and 80s to pay the bills under pseudonyms. They're not bitter about it. When Norsky... Yeah. He also didn't use a pseudonym. He just used his like regular name. Most of the time. But I think when Norsky is bitter and angry that he is not still making two, three million dollar flicks for like a Roger Corman or something like that, that he's making $40,000 softcore films. I think, I think he's angry case, where he's, his career he's the is. One that, uh, I think he ruined his own reputation. Too many of those like softcore movies. And then of course, like Ghoulies 4 was terrible. There, I think there's just a lot of mistakes in his own uh, in his own career choices that that pretty much put him into a downward spiral. And now he's blaming that on everybody else when I think, in, in my opinion, he's the one that put himself where he is. And as I said before, just go and look up some of the behind the scenes on, on some of this. And, and keep in mind, this is when he knows he's being filmed. The way he my treats God. his cast and crew is just inexcusable. But then there is like the famous examples like James Cameron. James Cameron is one of those examples that's been bandied about since the freaking 80s of one of the worst people to work for on a crew. He has he, he also has that I'm the king syndrome. Talk to anybody who's worked with Cameron. Nobody has a positive story. That They have a positive story about when he's not on set, he's supposedly the nicest guy in the world. But when he's on set, he's an absolute dictator who will execute you for a minor mistake. The only guy that seems to ever have anything nice to say about him seems to be Arnold. 
Exactly. So James Cameron's one of those, but probably even worse than him is Michael Bay. Mm. I love I love Michael Bay's non-Transformers movies. You cannot find a positive story from a cast or crew member about working with Michael Bay. A friend well, of mine... Well, doesn't he, like, uh, audition women uh, to be in his movies and, and wants to see what they look like washing his car in, like, a bikini? Yes, that has happened so, because he's a sexist. A friend of mine worked with him on Transformers 3 in Milwaukee. The scenes in the Chicago Museum were actually all shot in Milwaukee. So in the movie, it's Chicago, but it's actually Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Bay would treat everyone like garbage. He would treat them like they were serfs. He said he would he would be openly, this is so pre-Me Too, he would be openly with some of his director of photography and stuff like that, ogling the female PAs and the female female crew members and they had a bet on which ones looked better in their would look better outside of their shirts and things like that the way michael bay treats people is just sickening he 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 should not be able to get away with this he's a super sleazy guy Okay, people like Michael Bay don't give credit very easily. There's a there's a position called a second unit director on movies. What this used to mean was these were the people that say there's an insert shot. Say, okay, Bruce Willis comes into the detective's office, he throws a, a folder down on the thing, and then you see just a, a shot of, of James Coburn's hand picking it up. The second right. unit director, that wouldn't actually be James Coburn's hand, the second unit director would then come in later and get a tight shot of him picking up the folder. That's, that used to be what a second unit director did. They would get the insert shots, basically the things the director doesn't need to be bothered with getting, but the movie absolutely needs, the coverage. Nowadays, you see so many second unit directors that really should be getting credit as co-directors. There are so many second unit directors that do all of the work, and, and the cinematographer as well. The cinematographer or director of photography, they do way more than you think they do. In a lot of cases, the director will say, this is what I want. Then the cinematographer will set that up, get all the lighting done, get all the, the shadows to land right and everything. And then the director will just come in and go, yes, I like it. Let's shoot that. Cinematographers do not get enough credit. Not at all. And that's a thing that you can go back on for Cameron. Like, like James Cameron seems to think that he's like the be all end all for his production. Like he takes, he takes credit for absolutely everything when he's not the cinematographer, he's not the editor, he's not the composer. He's just a guy that tells you where to point the camera. You see that a lot on these big budget productions with really big budget directors where they will just show up and go, yes, I like this and then leave. They're on set for minutes while everyone else is doing everything else. Now, ultimately, it comes down on them. I'm not trying to say a director has no input. I'm trying to say a second unit director and a DP deserve a lot more credit on these movies than you think they do. Unless... They're putting a lot more hours into it, and then the director will kind of take credit for all of the stuff that they're doing. Well, see, you also have people like Tony Kaye who has not made much that anybody has seen outside of American History X. He was his own cinematographer. He was his own cameraman. He was his own grip. I mean, when he made American History X, he was doing everything. He was directing. He was the cinematographer. He was the grip. He would set up the lights. He, He had a crew, but they were there just to help him out made that movie he said part of he thinks that's part of the reason he and edward norton didn't get along he was literally in edward norton's face that entire movie holding that camera (laughs) so he's like yeah we just we we i was literally in his face the whole time you know but that's awesome though like that's that's a real filmmaker 
And of course, he has a massive ego, and listening to him talk is sort of like you, you, you start thinking, oh my god, I can see my own brain, my eyes are rolling back so far in my head. Because but he, at least in his case, though, like he really does walk the walk. Yeah, but he's got a giant ego that I don't think his talent can cash. I love Orson Welles. And Orson Welles is a 50-50-er on this. Because if Orson is making the movie, everybody has great things to say about him. Because he he would work with the same crews over and over, the same lighting people. Gary Graver was always his cinematographer. But now, if Orson was making a movie for somebody else, or a commercial, or a TV appearance, or something he was doing only for the money, we've all seen those famous outtakes where he will not stop berating you, and complaining, and bitching and moaning so orson wells i'm gonna put out a halfer if it's his project he's great to work with if he's only doing it for the money get the hell out of man's way if it's your project you're screwed there's too much directing going on here one more word out of you and you're gone there's something very interesting when it comes to that because it's like this is a guy who his directorial debut became like one of the biggest and most famous and most well-received films of all time. Like Citizen Kane being your first movie is not going to be good for your career. And coming off of the critical acclaim of the War of the Worlds radio show too. Exactly. I don't think that that is going to work very well for anybody because as the way history tells it, if you look at anybody whose very first movie is their most successful film, they tend to downward spiral after that and either go a bit crazy or get very obsessed with substance abusing then they will eventually tailspin out of control look at what happened with edward furlong with terminator 2 your first movie should not be t2 because the guy got well addicted to drugs and alcohol super fast i believe it was uva bull that said real nice guy too bad drugs destroyed his brain or something like that Um, i I don't think that's a quote but you're close it's something like that. It was on, um, I believe, the commentary for Assault on Wall Street. Yes. But something very similar happened uh, with Orson Welles because, you know, he eventually started doing these, like, commercials for th- these, like, crappy champagnes and, and for, for Mrs. Buckley's peas or whatever the hell else. And he'd be showing up to set drunk and he'd be dictating and he'd be telling people that they're all pests and that they're all nobody nobody can work as well as he does and like all this stuff like i think he really did let his ego get to his head and it's because he had such early success with film and his directorial debut was such a smash hit and then then you've got this guy that's like showing up and doing these commercials and he still thinks he's the citizen king guy like i I think that's kind of what happened there the one thing we can give orson wells though is he was always professional when the camera was rolling. There's an interesting yes. extra on the late great planet Earth DVD. It was this religious nut documentary that he narrated on camera and voiceover because he needed the money. He said they paid really, really well. On the DVD, they talk about how he was so much trouble. He would bitch constantly. He had complaints about everything. But when you yelled action, he was dead on. He'd do it in the first take. And as soon as you'd yell cut, he would be back to complaining. So at least he he was professional. He knew what he was doing, but he was obviously just a very, very stressed out guy. Very deep into the bottle as well. Like, I I think he he became a a raging alcoholic in his later years. What about actors sometimes? 
that, that just are, why do you have to be like this? For instance, <laughs> I interviewed Peter Jason years ago. You know, we all mm. love Peter Jason. He, he's, he's probably the number one that guy in, in most movies, you know? I, I was asking him, you know, you've worked with Eddie Murphy and all of these people. And the way I, I phrased the question was, you've worked with all these great people. Are there any actors that you didn't like or were difficult to work with? I didn't even get to finish the question. I said, work with. He goes, Steven Seagal. Oh, God. And he, he talked about how Steven Seagal, because remember, they were in Marked for Death together. He was Seagal's boss at the beginning. Got to give you people a little bit of how films work. So you have shot, reverse shot. So you've got the camera on Peter Jason, and you've got Steven Seagal's head. So Steven Seagal should be reading his lines so Peter Jason can react to them. And then you would do the reverse, where Steven Seagal's on camera and Peter Jason's doing that. Steven Seagal wouldn't read his lines if the camera wasn't on him. He considered it oh. wasting a really good take. So the, oh my so god. He would just sit there while the script girl would read Seagal's lines for Peter Jason to react to. No. You talk to anyone who's worked with Seagal, and they all say he is one of the worst actors. Uh, they're not talking talent-wise like on-camera charisma, but one of the worst, most selfish, most asshole actors they've ever worked with. That's that's an unfortunate truth, and it's something that's been happening for years, and at least we can say that Gene LaBelle choked him out and made him crap his pants. That's true. But then sometimes, what about when it's an actor... And it depends on what era you're talking about. Because William Shatner is a dividing line. You talk to anyone who worked with him in the 70s, the 80s, or the early 90s, and they're like, the guy is a prick, he's selfish, he's mean, he'll berate you on set, he's got a giant ego, he's such a complete raging asshole. Maybe he had an epiphany or something. You talk to anyone who's worked with him from 2000 and up, and they're like, he's so kind, he's so giving, he's so down to earth, he's so nice. Maybe I, I someone think, like... Uh... I think life eventually humbled him because he definitely did chill out a lot later on because you, you have all these stories from back in the day from the late 60s, the 70s, the 80s, where a lot of people would consider him to be just a real prick on set. Then there's that like, oh, that trash that he pulled with uh, with Harlan Ellison where he got Harlan to come to his house to show him the script for uh, City on the it? Edge the of City, Forever. City on the Edge of Forever. Yeah. And. And he so line Shatner, counted. So Shatner was one of the first people to read that script, and he got Harlan to come over, and he was all buddy-buddy with him, and he told him, like, how great it was and how he's so excited to read this. Then he immediately goes to Roddenberry and is like, Nimoy has more lines than me. I want more lines in this. Like, God, what an asshole. Like, I get that he's, like, mellowed out now, but I think a lot of the stuff that he did in his heyday was like unforgivable, like just totally unprofessional, totally egomaniacal, like didn't care what other people were trying to do and their visions and their, their artwork and stuff. Like as long as the shat man had his day in the spotlight, that's what counted. Like, I really do think that he was a very irredeemable prick on a lot of levels for a lot of the early stuff that he did. I know when I interviewed him last year, guy could not have been nicer. Well, yeah, he was. He, so like I said, someone with Shatner, I think it's what era 
you worked with him. You've got something like Kevin Spacey. Now let's leave all the sex abuse stuff out. Okay. Let's leave all, leave all, let's just talk about Kevin Spacey as an actor. There are very few people who have nice things to say about working with Kevin Spacey. They say he is selfish. He is mean. John Barenthal, because they worked together on Baby Driver, had yes, this story for a couple about, of days. yeah, it was only a couple of days, but he said he couldn't believe what a prick Spacey was. Spacey yes. was, was giggling about how he could treat the crew like crap and how they were all afraid of him he actually went up to john at one point and said you want to see something cool watch this and he started yelling at a pa to and, and the pa started shaking and ran off and then spacey started laughing going <laughs> and barenthal yeah. was like fuck you dude barenthal basically said if he was on that set longer he was going to kick his ass it was really starting to bug him that he was like witnessing this guy basically just like bullying what he considered to be underlings like spacey regardless of whether the sexual allegation stuff are true like even besides that there is proof of him being a real abusive prick anyway so it's like there really isn't anything redeemable about him and i just don't understand i guess this is the point of this episode why do you have to be like this why are you a raging asshole why is it so hard to be a nice person but then there's also the ultimate actor gone crazy have you ever seen the short film please kill mr kinsky i don't think so it's about the making of crawl space mm. where the crew actually wanted Kinski killed. He was so evil on that set that they, and the director says, this is not a joke. This is not hyperbole. They were asking us to arrange an accident to please kill Mr. Kinski. Wow. And you even have Kinski in this documentary talking about how he's not going to listen to any director. You don't get to direct me. I know what the character wants. How dare you think you can direct me in a movie? Yeah, Klaus Kinski is kind of notorious for his uh, very strange and sometimes very creepy onset behavior. Like, what was that? There was uh, that alien knockoff that he Creature, did. Where, where his... he, between takes, they were shooting down the street from a high school. Kinski, who was in his, I think, 50s at that point, maybe even yes. 60s, was going down to pick up girls at the high school. Yeah. So he's... Uh... He also claims creep. that he raped Natasha Kinski and took her virginity, his daughter. My God. You know what? I'm actually surprised there hasn't been a Law & Order SVU episode based on Kinski yet. <laughs> <laughs> or I'm I'm also surprised that there hasn't been like a, a massive like Me Too thing about the guy. Well, he's dead, so. Well, he's dead, so. But nobody's really, not a lot of people really talk about him much. It's weird. Like, obviously, like, if you go through our our sort of circles and the people that we know, like they sort of know what he's about and what he's done, but you still have people like still really enjoying his movies. I think James Cameron is a me too waiting to happen from a lot of the stories I've heard. I think he's just a me too that hasn't happened yet. Oh Jesus. Method. This is not just method actors. Sometimes you have method directors. No, no method is where you, you don't act the character. You become the character. That prick Jared Leto on Suicide Squad. He was yeah, that's the not Joker. Acting. That's just being an asshole. And he is like, in general, he is one of those very questionable kind of people. Like, yeah, they, I've there not are heard a lot of a lot good of, stories about the man. There's a lot of stories about him sleeping with like 16, 17 year old groupies and, and stuff like that. Like he's and apparently he's got like a cult dedicated to himself. Like he's not a nice guy. He's, he's always been a piece of shit. 
But when it comes to method, I think method is the worst kind of acting you can do because it proves you're not an actor. If you have to live inside the character, you're not an actor. Your job is to be able to turn it on, turn it off. It's not, I'm Blade. You will only you will only address me as Blade. You will direct me as Blade. No, you're Wesley Snipes. <laughs> you should be able to turn it on and off. You're not a good actor if you have to go method. I despise method actors. But oh, you God, also those, have... Those stories of, of the Blade 3 shoot, like that really is some of the largest, like most like bold examples of secondhand embarrassment that I think I've ever felt is is Wesley Snipes like communicating to people through little sticky notes staying in his trailer all day and getting high most of the time and demanding that he be referred to as Blade like that's so cringeworthy but it's not just actors sometimes you have directors that do this like i love all of oliver stone's pre-insanity films okay natural born killers is a very chaotic movie fine but he wanted a chaotic mood on the set so he would blast death metal constantly and randomly fire off shotguns because he wanted everyone on edge to get that chaos sort of feel no dude you're just being an asshole is what you're being oh god you're not being edgy. You're not being a great director. You're being a prick. That's really, really cringy. Like I don't, I don't see how that would affect like the quality of a film. I think that would just get your cast and crew like annoyed with you. Well, but then again, there's Michael Cimino. I dare you to find somebody who's had a positive working experience with Michael Cimino on a movie. I mean, some of them are like like Walken. He, he's worked with a couple of times. Things like, you know, he's worked with certain actors over and over. But as a crew member, try to find a positive experience from working on a Michael Cimino film. And well, what and, did he do with that? There was that like uh, Civil War Western film that he made. What was Heaven's that Gate. Heaven's Gate. Heaven's Gate. I think what was like one of the most notorious stories from that set was like they had built this like Western town. And he decided because one tower or building or something was like a quarter of an inch too far from where like the camera lens was. So they had to tear the whole thing down to build it again so it would look slightly better in the shot. He also, and now remember, this is an American film shot in America, decided that the special effects for a horse being blown up with dynamite didn't look real enough. So without asking anyone, he blew up an actual horse that's in the film with dynamite yeah. because it's better for the, he's one of those guys that everything is okay if it makes the movie better. And the worst part about that is, is that you barely even really see it. Like it was completely pointless. Yeah, but my my point is Michael Cimino is a prick. Same with, and again, we're going to leave all the sex abuse stuff out, Harvey Weinstein as a producer. Everyone other than Quentin Tarantino and Kevin Smith, who for some reason got a pass on this, Harvey Weinstein treated like absolute garbage. He was known, he was famous for going through assistance at Miramax. The average time an office person would work at Miramax was two and a half weeks before they would either have a breakdown or be randomly fired while in the middle of just doing their job. Right. Harvey Weinstein, again, leaving all the sex stuff out, was an example of a straight-up bully in Hollywood. He loved to be able to fire people. He loved the joy that came with firing somebody. I, I can't understand. Yeah. Why, why are you like this? Why are you like this? 
God, with Weinstein, like, it really isn't one thing. Like, obviously, there is the all the sexual abuse allegations against him. They're not allegations anymore. It's it's actual proof. But it's like even before that, I think he was already very detested by the industry. He would always have his mitts in movies. He would always try to change things. He, he was like pretty much notorious as the guy that would ruin your film. But it comes down to why are you like this? I mean, unless <laughs> unless it is like just a sadistic, maybe a sexual joy that making a woman cry gets you hard. Because he was notorious for firing women because he would probably do to his sex problems. He would have most of the staff at Miramax would be females. And like I said, average was two and a half weeks before you would either quit out of disgust or you would be fired. You wouldn't even know why you were fired. It was just, right. get your shit and get out. And you hear these stories about Hollywood all the time. There was a great there was a great article about a year or so ago. I, I don't remember what website it was on, but it was about how after all the Harvey Weinstein stuff came out, it was all of these, most trying to stay anonymous because, you know, we're still working for these people, about just how bad it is. To yeah. work in Hollywood, how you are constantly berated, you are constantly called stupid, you are physically abused, you are mentally abused, you are emotionally abused. Being an assistant in Hollywood is akin to a kind of intentional slavery, a kind of, I'm doing it to myself, but I want to be a slave. And that's the way you're treated in Hollywood. And I think that is absolutely despicable. It shouldn't be like that. I know the reality is it's like that. I'm saying it doesn't have to be like that. I think if you're one of these people who berates other people on set, who just loves firing someone, you should have your power stripped from you. Because there's always a bigger person out there, as you said earlier, that is going to take it from you. Harvey exactly. finally had it taken from him. I'm not saying you can't have a blow-up. Sometimes a director, you've had a bad day, maybe shit is really not going well, and you just have a one-time blow-up. That or an happens. Or actor, too, like what happened with, uh, with Chris and Bale in the set of Terminator Salvation because that was kind of one of the only times he did something like that and everybody everybody took it like really far and was like oh this guy's such a prick he's such an asshole but with Bale at least like on a lot of different radio shows and, and different other interviews like he did apologize about that and he did basically say that he, he was having a really stressful time with his with his family I think his like mom was sick at the time and he did apologize my point is a one time blow up is something that happens we all lose exactly. our we all yeah, lose our stats at some Everybody point has the the um potential to get really stressed out and to be an asshole and to be mean it happens people will get mean sometimes even the nicest person in the world can have a massive blow up and get fucking mad at you or something like it all depends on how it's handled afterwards whether that person decides to apologize whether that person decides to own up to it and change there are people that are just mean all the time for no reason and that's i think pretty much what we're talking about yes so so i'm not trying to say oh i i was there when this director had a blow up at one of his actresses okay one time is not what i'm talking about i'm talking about these are people who it is a pattern it is a it is a known thing that this is how they act this is what you should expect like even 
I've talked about it more than once. When I worked with Eric Roberts on that movie, we were told ahead of time, he's going to berate you, he's going to treat you like crap, take it and do your job. Now, thankfully, maybe he was just in a good mood. The, like, four days I worked with him, he could not have been a nicer, more open guy. But I also Mm. did see him... I I didn't hear what happened. I was in the room, but he whispered something. He had apparently been just f***ing with his makeup girl for a while. I don't mean, like, like, you know, sex f***ing. But, I mean, he'd been berating her for a while. She was doing his makeup, and he whispered something, and she threw her makeup stuff down and said, I can't take this anymore! And she ran off, and then he and the producer ran off to try and quell this, and she came back. But that was clearly... He'd been screwing with her for a while now, and she just couldn't take it. So, I don't know if it was... Like I said, I worked with him. Could not have been nicer. But the fact is, we were warned ahead of time, he's going to be like this. Oh my god. And that is a problem when you know going into this. Like, a friend of mine was a PA on that on that Samuel L. Jackson movie, The Caveman's Valentine. I don't know if this comes from Samuel L. Jackson or if this is just a preventative thing, but he was told, as well as as all the other PAs, you do not speak to Mr. Jackson unless he speaks to you first. You do not make eye contact with Mr. Jackson. If you run into him in the hallway going to the bathroom, you do not speak to him. You only are allowed to speak to Mr. Jackson if he initiates contact. And I thought, well, f*** Samuel L. Jackson then. That could just be his, uh his agent being overly precautious? It could be. That's why I said I don't know if this comes from Samuel Jackson, but my friend was specifically told, do not even make eye contact with him. I, I don't think that he's he's a prick at all. Like, everything that I've heard about him, like, through his interviews and, and the types of movies that he makes and, and the way he is, like, when he is talking to people normally, I, I don't think that's him. I think that's just his agent taking way too many precautionary measures. That may be. That's why I prefaced with this might not be coming from him. But yeah. M- my, my point in this whole thing is if this is continues to be happening, we're in the Me Too era. We're in the cell phone recording era. Why are people like Michael Bay still allowed to be like this? Why are people like Oliver Stone still allowed to be like this? Why are people like James Cameron still allowed to be like this? I like all of the, I like movies from these people. Why are you still allowed to be like this? And not only allowed to, why are you like this? Why is it so hard to just be a good person? I don't, it's, it's kind of like how when you see like Mitch McConnell as, as a Republican, literally smiling as he's taking healthcare away from poor people. You just say to yourself, why are you like this? It's something that comes naturally. I think it's something that you inherently have to already be something that you already have to possess. I don't know. In in my case, anytime I've been mean to people, it's not easy for me to do. It takes a lot out of me. It takes a lot of energy out of me for me to be a dick. I, I don't like doing it people that it comes naturally to that's just that's how they walk walk their path that's what they do they're just they're mean people they berate others they enjoy watching the the suffering of other human beings like i think that's what it is you have to just you have to just be that kind of person it's a creative sociopathy and Pretty I'm much. sick of it. I'm sick of hearing stories about actors I like, directors I like, writers I like, and what psychopaths they are 
off the page, off the camera, whatever. Uh, with Sonny Landham and, and people like that. Yeah, Sonny Landham was such a jerk that on movies, they would have to hire bodyguards for him. Not bodyguards to bodyguard him, but to bodyguard other people from him. Yes, because he he enjoyed starting physical altercations with people and he didn't want to hold his punches back he really wanted to to hit people during action scenes like the guy is a is a nut but then again you also have stories like sid haig and lance henriksen and people like that where they are the kindest most down-to-earth easiest people to get along with i could just list all of these great actors and directors that have reputations that are these are genuinely good people And then you also have all of these directors and actors where you say, these are genuinely awful people who should not continue to have the power that they wield. Indeed. Like there's, there's no difference here. Uh, as far as like, like there's no excuse that just because you've made it into Hollywood and you made it onto a movie set that all of a sudden you get to be a prick. Cause there's plenty of people that have worked in the industry for years that are just the nicest people. Guys like that you mentioned, Guys like Sid Haig, guys like Jeffrey Combs, people like this, that like nobody has anything negative to say about them. No one has anything negative to say about Lance Henriksen or or people like this. But yet you have all these other people that are just nothing but cunts to the people they work to. And it's like there's no excuse. It, it isn't like the Hollywood machine and the film, the film industry machine does not make you a prick. You have to already be one because there are plenty of people that work in the industry that are super nice, that have nothing negative said about them. It isn't the industry that makes you that way. I think it's it's the person already coming into it. I was in a movie I shot last year. I was only on for one day, probably in the film for maybe two minutes total, called Routines. That's going to be coming out soon. I'm not really an actor, as you know that, but I'm, I'm playing an absolute prick in the movie. And at one point, we were shooting really early in the morning, and I just drove four hours to Chicago for it. I forgot my lines on one of the very first take. I forgot one of my lines. And we have professional actors here, some like on you know Chicago Fire and stuff like that. They could have been like, all right, get rid of this guy. He's clearly not able to do this. But it was, look, I'm tired. Okay, I blew my line. Didn't happen again. They could right. have been pricks to me. They weren't. They could have been, though. That's because it's understandable. You know, uh, the thing about acting and making movies and directing and stuff, it is a job. And not everybody, nobody, in fact, is 100% always perfect at their job. Everybody messes something up. Everybody forgets to do something. Everyone causes mistakes and accidents at some point or another at their job. And that's what that's what being on a movie set is. That's what being an actor is. That's what being a director is. It is work. And sometimes you screw up at work. It all depends on whether you have a dickhead boss or supervisor or floor manager or whatever, or if you have somebody that understands that mistakes get made, anything, most anything can be fixed and it's okay. You blew your line, whatever. That's what other takes are for. Exactly. So my final thoughts on this are, don't be an asshole, asshole. Just try to be nice. Try to be a nice person. I don't know why it's so hard unless you're a sociopath. If you're a sociopath, I get it. It's not okay, but I get it. Don't be a prick. That's my final thoughts. So where can people find Peter if they wish to tell him how wrong they are and what a prick he is? <laughs> On uh, Twitter, at Zinematica, Uncle Blackie Pete. 
Facebook, The Cinemasochist, YouTube, The Cinemasochist, of course, 1201beyond.com with other fine programming and Patreon at Zinematica. And you can find me at 1201beyond.com. You can contact this show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. Guys, try to be a cut above. Keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold. Have a good night. Find it and other great content at 1201beyond.com.